What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans and a blockbuster jobs report when we really didn't need it. 390,000 jobs added in May, more people coming into the labor force. That's always a good thing. Average hourly earnings up 5% from last year. No real signs of a slowdown here. So does the Fed have to get even more aggressive? Loretta Mester, head of the Cleveland Fed, will join us with her take on these numbers and what it means for rate hikes. And as the Fed tries to engineer a Goldilocks economy, we'll hear from someone on the hunt for Goldilocks stocks. Don't pay too much for growth, but don't catch falling knives either. She will name names. First, though, let's start with the market. Stocks are falling at this hour. Dom Chu has the latest. But, Kelly, not falling by as much as they were earlier in the session. So as we take you through the numbers, keep in mind that we are decently off session lows right now. The Dow Industrials, though, still off about 218 points, two-third percent declines right there. The S&P 500 sits at 41.24, 50 points to the downside, off about one and a quarter percent, and two percent declines for the NASDAQ composite overall, down 256 points. By the way, energy, far and away, the best performing sector so far today. Only one in the green so far, as you can see behind me here. That takes us to our week-to-date kind of look here. Over the course of the past week, energy has still been the standout momentum play on an overall basis, up roughly one, one and a quarter percent for the week overall. Discretionary, also one of the better performing sectors on a relative basis. Meanwhile, healthcare has been the real laggard over that last week. So that's the way the week has played out so far. And then today, a lot of focus on the mega cap stocks out there, especially when it comes to Apple and Tesla. Those two stocks, with Apple being down about three and a half percent nearly, Tesla down nearly eight percent. Two of the biggest drags right now in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ and NASDAQ 100. Apple had some specific issues there with regard to whether or not interest rates going higher. Could take some of that shine off growth. Same thing for Tesla. Also some more company specific stories with regard to maybe concerns about growth at the services side of things for Apple. And then for Tesla, we've talked all about this all day, about Elon Musk and the job cuts that are happening there, what it could mean for the company. And by the way, the fact that he has a very might be soured outlook on the economy. Still, though, those two stocks, key focus here for traders going into the afternoon and, of course, into this weekend. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Now, my next guest says the labor market is slowing, but I would argue it's not slowing nearly enough right now. So let's take a quick look at the data, including what we learned in the jobs report this morning. So for starters, that key bellwether ISM manufacturing index, we got that earlier this week, that surprisingly rebounded to a read of 56. This is hardly a sign of a slowing economy. We're going to Again, good is good and bad as well. You know what I'm saying here. Then we got the jolts or the job openings report. It still showed almost 11 million openings after the previous month was revised higher. So jolts still showing very, very strong, very hot, you might want to call it, labor market on top of that. And again, jolts is lagging. I get that. But yesterday, we learned that weekly jobless claims, one of the most sensitive leading indicators, remains incredibly low at just 200,000. That's despite the layoffs that we know about in the worlds of crypto and tech. 
That brings us to today. The monthly jobs report was incredibly strong. Hourly earnings up 5.2% from a year ago and up 6.5% for non-supervisory workers. As Jeffries points out, it's sort of good, but it's also sort of bad, depending on the point of view we're coming at from this on what the Fed will have to do here. The ISM services report this morning also showed an increase in the employment component while the overall reading remains at a healthy level just below 56. So we'll hear what the Fed's Loretta Mester thinks of all of this in a moment. But first, joining me now is Tom Porcelli. He is RBC's chief U.S. economist. Tom, did I convince you? <laughs> I, I do appreciate the effort. I, I will say that, Kelly. It's, it's, good, it's good to be with you. It's good to have you here. Tell me what your takeaways are on the labor market and the pace yeah. of Fed hikes. Do you think the economy is going to slow into recession in the back half of the year? So uh, slowing, I think, is an easy case to make. Uh, you know, the degree to which it slows, that, that's where I think the debate is and, and, and where we should be debating it. Um, you know, some of the things that we look at do suggest that the labor backdrop is slowing down. I mean, look, I, I think that this number was a, a good number. It was north of consensus. It actually came pretty close to our number. Um, but I, I would say that, you know, you, you're starting that process of slowing down. It's funny. When, I feel like anytime we have this conversation, it's like, People want it like now. You know, it, it doesn't really work that way. I mean, short of turning the economy off like a light switch, uh, as we did during the pandemic. I mean, it takes time for this stuff to develop. Um, and, and I think by the end of the year, um, I think that the labor backdrop will be in a, in a different spot. And, and so just, just to talk about that a little bit, because it's not just like a hunch, right? It's like, what are the things that we're looking at? So I, I think that there's a couple of things. So for starters, I think that jobless claims putting in the lows, they remain low, but they also seemingly have put in the lows already. Um, I think, again, it's an early sort of sign that things are starting to slow down. Um, uh, one of the things that we highlighted in our, our note yesterday is if you look at um, something like uh, the Beige Book, uh, we have a, a Beige Book uh, labor shortage index, um, which is basically just measures the amount of times labor shortage is mentioned. That, that has slowed in a, in, a, in a pretty meaningful way. Um, and, and if you layer on top of that something like, you know, the, the conference board's um, labor differential index, you know, that is also now in the, in the midst of seemingly slowing. So I think that there are a lot of indicators that suggest that we're, we're moving into a, a sort of a slower plane here. But is are we all being confused by sort of as, as it's called the second derivative effect here? In other words, just because it's slowing doesn't mean inflation's not still going to be with us for some time. None of this points to us yeah. slowing enough that we're going to go back to anything like 2% inflation anytime soon. Yeah. And look, and you're speaking to someone who actually thinks that inflation will be quite a bit lower than I think a lot of people um, have been talking about. But even I don't expect, uh, you know, core inflation will get back down to, you know, call it 2%, not anytime soon. I do think that you'll get to a, a slower uh, pace. And I think it could be a pace that actually makes the Fed feel comfortable as we get to the end of the year. So, uh, you know, I would define that as, you know, if you're holding a three handle on core inflation, um, I think that that's probably something that would make the Fed feel comfortable. And I thought it was really interesting yesterday. I mean, uh, for all of the things that everyone seemed to focus on um, from Lael Brainerd's uh, comments uh, yesterday, I think the most interesting thing that she said actually related to the idea that, you know, they're now really focused on, or, or she is focused, focused on core over headline inflation. That creates a much lower hurdle um, to sort of, you know, feel more comfortable with, right. with uh, um, uh, prices. But are you saying you think core inflation is going to so slow from 6% to 3% and just there's only seven months left in the year? Only seven months. I, the only part I, I, have a, I have a hard time with. I mean, I think what you have to keep in mind is that if you look at the goods complex, I think that you can easily um, see a lot of these components really disinflate. 
um, you know, used car prices are a great example um, uh, of something we think will will really start the process of slowing in earnest as the year uh, continues to progress. So I think, I mean, again, our official forecast is your 3.8%, uh, 3.6, sorry, 3.6 um, from a core perspective. Um, so uh, I, I think that, yeah, I think that that's actually not a hard case to make, just given the fact that you're going to see probably some disinflationary forces show up in some of the goods components. But again, you're still going to be elevated. It's just, is the Fed going to feel comfortable with that? No, I think we- that's something that they need to start to outline. I would like to hear them talk more about the transition from goods to services inflation, because, yes, yes, used car prices are down. But like Randy Krasner was reminding us the other day, airfares are way up. You know, energy yeah. and input to pretty much anything, goods or yeah. services, continues to be at more or less record highs right now. You have yep. labor market. That's why we're focusing so much on the labor market. You want to know the future cost yep. of child care, elder care, health, like you name it. That's all going to come from a tight labor market. And it's only pointing higher. Yeah, so I I think it's such a great discussion point. So one thing I would highlight is particularly those airfares. You know, it's it's interesting. Airfares rose what near twenty percent last month. There was I think eleven percent the month prior. It took a twenty percent, a twenty percent month on month gain to show up as a tenth of a percent gain in the headline. Right? Think about that. It just drives home that the weight of some of these service components are really really small. Now the single biggest weight. In, in inflation in general, but certainly within uh, services, is, is uh, the shelter component. And we expect shelter will remain very firm over the balance of the year. Um, so I, again, again, I think you have to remember, if I think about airlines, um, airfares, think about what one of the easiest things to cut from your discretionary spending is if prices get a bit too elevated, yeah. something like airfares. Um, so, uh, you know, again, we, we have firm airfares embedded in our current month uh, CPI forecast. You know, there's going to be one month where that thing just falls and probably falls pretty hard. If forecasting, that's a little trickier. Um, but I have no um, reason to believe that uh, it'll happen anytime soon because there's still a lot of demand for travel. All right. I, I want to do a Twitter poll. Team Team Kelly or Team Tom? It's, I, <laughs> that's just a joke. I don't even do that. You're the economist, but I, I appreciate yeah, I the I love the idea. I yeah. love the idea. <laughs> really good counterpoints, Tom. And thanks for the discussion. It's good to have you today. And I'm glad the sun came back out behind you, by the way. Yes, uh, thanks, Kelly. Tom Porcelli with RBC. Our next guest says demand destruction has already started as inflation takes a bite out of consumer wallets. That has her looking for Goldilocks stocks that are not too hot and not too cold right now. Joining us is Nancy Pryle. She is the co-CEO and senior portfolio manager at Essex Investment Management. Nancy, real quick, what kind of environment are these picks suited for? The, the sort of inflationary cool down Tom was describing or the persistence that I'm worried about? I think they're best suited for the inflationary cooldown, um, particularly in an environment where growth is slowing, but that we don't go into a recession, which is our base case scenario. We also we agree with what Tom was saying that we're seeing the beginnings of price declines, cost declines in a number of the commodity areas. We're seeing it in lumber, as he mentioned. We're seeing it in cars. We know that many of the retailers are over inventoried. We suspect that there's double ordering and some inventory building in semiconductors and some of those related areas. And those will all lead to some better pricing and costs, both for companies and for consumers going forward, but not so much that it causes the economy to tip into a recession. As a result, we want companies that have tailwinds of growth behind them that are not as dependent on consumer spending, but are really being driven by some of the forces that are reshaping the American economy for the next few years. All right. So I appreciate the the sort of warning, if you will, that, you know, you need a healthier inflation outlook for, for a lot of what you're about to say to work. And these are names, and this has been a real theme 
for us, and you've mentioned it and others have as well. These are the sort of under-the-radar plays that a lot of investment managers are looking for right now. I mean, names like Indava, Digi International, Evoqua Water Solutions, MRC Global. What are the criteria that get you to these picks? So what we are looking for is we're looking for, in general, companies that still have good revenue growth. We want companies with tailwinds for that revenue growth, whether it be government spending and the interest in clean water that Evoqua is benefiting from, whether it be from reinvestment in our energy grid like MRC Global, plus a clean tech play there as they invest in carbon capture and some of the wind areas, or the digital transformation that we've been talking about and experiencing for so many years, like Indava and Digi, but with companies that are making money, that are positive on free cash flow, where the investors can see the return on their investment today and not just in the future. Yeah, and Nancy, what do you make of all the comments we've gotten? There has been a, a storm, to borrow the metaphor, of CEO <laughs> remarks. Everything from Elon Musk talking about how he's super worried, Jamie Dimon warning a hurricane might be coming, and their concern in Tesla's case being expressed into real-world layoffs. What does all of this tell you? So we are concerned. We are going to see a negative cycle in Silicon Valley, um, whether it is in the money-losing, very high-growth companies in a lot of the, the SaaS and um, cloud-based areas, some of the healthcare companies, and some of the EV and sustainability companies. We've had a large venture capital cycle. We're, we're no longer in the sweet spot there. And I think certainly some of that is being reflected in what these CEOs are saying. I also think everybody needs to take a pause here and remember that an economic slowdown does not necessarily mean that we're in 2000, 2001 or 2008 or 2020. This looks to us much more like a garden variety recession where we'll have pockets of weakness. Again, we think Silicon Valley is one that will be relatively weak, but pockets of strength. Um, the middle of the country, we heard the plans from Ford yesterday about expanding their manufacturing plants. And so True. I, I hate to um, say that these CEOs who've built such wonderful businesses are being... Um, a little uh, reactionary perhaps to the headlines, but it does feel to us like there's a little bit of hyperbole here that although we'll see a slowdown, it doesn't mean that we are facing gale force winds. It's more, again, a garden variety recession that we believe the market has already discounted, particularly the small cap stocks. Well, I appreciate the comments and also some strategies for investors who are desperately needing them right now. Nancy, thanks for your time. Thank you. Nancy Pryle with Essex Investment Management. Coming up is buy now, pay later, flashing a warning of its own on the health of the consumer. We'll look at the risks to both borrowers and lenders next. Plus, the first Fed official to react to the jobs report. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester joins us with her take on the numbers and what they suggest about the economy. And as we head to break, we're keeping an eye on these markets with the Dow down 200 points and the Nasdaq down more than 2% as that 10-year rate climbs back up towards 3%. There it is on the far bottom right, almost at 296. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. 
Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS. Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Buy Now, Pay Later was one of the big innovations that boomed during the pandemic, helping send e-commerce spending soaring. But now the so-called BNPL names are some of the worst performers in the market, with a firm down 85 percent from its highs, PayPal and SoFi by more than 70 percent. What explains the massive slump in performance? Our senior personal finance correspondent Sharon Epperson is here with that story. And Moffat Nathans and partner Lisa Ellis is here with our trades. If we can set it up this way. Uh, welcome to both of you. And Sharon, let's start with you. Well, Kelly, you know, rising interest rates on credit products as well as missed payments can be big problems for buy now, pay later companies and for consumers, too. LendingTree found that 42 percent of buy now, pay later users said they'd paid late on one of these loans. Depending on what lenders do next could impact your credit score. Some will report the the default and the delinquency to your credit report. Some won't. Um, they're they're all going to come after their money. There's no, no question about that. But buy now, pay later companies generally do not report to the credit bureaus when consumers use these loans. Credit Karma CEO Kenneth Lynn says that can create a major issue when it comes to understanding consumers' total debt burden. The challenge there is, well, you don't know if you have 10 other loans or just one other loan. And that makes a big difference in terms of how much you should loan, uh, but at the same time, how much you potentially could pay back. And as soon as you start slipping backwards, you might be in that situation where, you know, that, that debt snowballs on you and you lose control of it. And Ken Lin says that's when consumers can get into deep trouble, Kelly. All right. So what happens, Sharon, if someone's debt starts to snowball because they can't afford payments. I've heard some of the platforms will say, well, you can't spend on ours anymore, but there seem to be others you can pick from. Exactly. You can pick from others. You may be charged fees if you're not able to make the payments. And in some cases, you will have a delinquency or default reported to the credit reporting agency. So that's something you want to be wary of because that could definitely impact your credit history and your credit score. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Sharon, thank you so much. Our Sharon Epperson. And our next guest says inflation is a big problem for these payment players, but she still has two upside plays that should weather the storm. Let's welcome in Lisa Ellis, senior equity analyst and partner at Moffitt Nathan. And great to have you back, Lisa. Do you want to just start by responding to this same question, which is why have these stocks been hit so much? Some would argue, ah, it's just liquidity. It's just the Fed. Nothing macro or, or nothing company specific here. 
Yeah, it's a lot of factors. Uh, certainly liquidity in the Fed. I mean, these are in many cases high growth, um, unprofitable or less profitable firms. And so they've been caught up in the general pullback. Um, but in addition, there are certainly concerns about inflation, uh, which hits the middle income consumer very heavily, and they are the target market typically for BNPL. In addition, regulatory concerns uh, for all of the reasons I just highlighted a minute ago, the CFPB is starting to lean in a bit on putting some regulatory guardrails around these products, uh, which is creating a lot of uncertainty around the stocks. Um, and then, of course, there's the questions about the credit books. Um, the, the underlying risk models of these firms may be fantastic, but they may not be fantastic. Right. No one knows. They haven't been through a credit cycle. So who do you think is best positioned amongst the existing sort of standing uh, names that we're talking about? Well, we like Block the best. You know, Block bought Afterpay, the big Australian player. Um, and we like that one for a couple of reasons. One, just on a standalone basis, Afterpay uh, is really only in the very short duration, you know, pay in four model type of loans. So they have very limited downside risk in their models, uh, in their model, right? They're not in these longer duration, you know, kind of installment loans. They're really just the pay in four model. And then in addition to that, they're obviously incorporated into the broader uh, block company. And there's a lot of just natural synergy um, that might buffer some of the slowdown in Afterpay just coming in from the synergy uh, of integrating Afterpay into block. Um, on the flip side, we're a little more cautious on a firm. Uh, for the reasons I highlighted, as much as we're pretty positive on the outlook for BNPL as an offering, a credit offering over the medium to long term, it's been very innovative. Consumers really like it. We do see some of these near term um, headwinds, regulatory inflation, and then also just general pricing pressure, particularly in the U.S. market where it's gotten quite competitive over the last couple of years. And what do you expect is going to come down from regulators here? Uh, so what we're likely to see at a minimum, I think, you know, we we believe is clarity on the marketing language, uh, you know, as we've seen in the past with credit cards, right, where you have to be super clear with consumers about exactly what they're signing up for around late fees, interest, you know, whether it's going to show up on your credit score or not. So just you know, sometimes the messaging can make you feel like you're getting, you know, a discount on a product when in fact you're not getting a discount, you're just paying for it in multiple installments. So at a minimum, the CFPB just providing some clarity around guidelines and then probably also clarity around when and when not these products have to be reported to the credit bureaus. Uh, is it always, is it some of the time as you know, as the prior uh, guest highlighted, it's a bit inconsistent across the firms right now. And so for consumers, you know, they're dealing with a lot of uncertainty about whether or not this is going to affect my credit score or not. And if you're sort of given the cautiousness on a firm and the reasons why you're bullish on block, do you think a firm will end up as part of a larger company? Well, uh, I, I think there's plenty of suitors, uh, plenty of companies that would be very interested in a firm because they've got fantastic uh, user consumer base. They've got great partnerships with Amazon, um, with Shopify, for example. 
Uh, and the question will be more one probably to management of whether or not they would be willing to sell or whether they uh, prefer to try to go it alone. I mean, we think somebody like a American Express, for example, would make a fantastic suitor for somebody like a, a firm. Um, but many, you know, the, any of the traditional credit card issuers as well could potentially be suitors or somebody like a PayPal even, for example. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's probably more in the hands of, of a firm's management and board, you know, their interest or willingness to go in that direction. Absolutely. But again, could be a catalyst, but I'm sure not many investors want to speculate too much on that front. Lisa, thanks for all your thoughts today. Good to see you again. Thanks, Kelly. Lisa Ellis with Moffat Nathanson. And a quick programming note, the Affirm co-founder and CEO Max Levchin will be on Tech Check on Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Coming up, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester is here to react to the latest jobs report and give us her outlook for rate hikes. And in the meantime, energy prices keep soaring. WTI crude parked around $119 a barrel this morning. More increases in gasoline futures. There's the Arbob gas price around $4.24, suggesting a $5 nationwide average soon. And Chevron CEO Mike Worth saying there might never be another refinery built in the U.S. We'll speak with the former CEO of Gulf Oil next hour on Power Lunch. As we head to break, a quick look at the Dow heat map as the index is down 250 points. Now only a handful of names even in the green. We're back after this. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're watching markets. They're not at session lows, but they are down across the board. The Nasdaq in particular is down 2.4%. And here are some of the movers this hour. Watching Micron shares, which are sinking today after that Piper Sandler downgrade to underweight. They cut the price target by $20 to 70 blaming oversized exposure to mobile PCs and other consumer end markets that are seeing uh, some negative macroeconomic trends. MU shares are down 7%. American Airlines in the red, while the company raised its revenue growth forecast, they trimmed their capacity guidance and raised their fuel cost estimate. That's been a real bugaboo here. AAL shares also down 7%. And Okta, the best performer on the NASDAQ today. The management software company posted better than expected results last night. We previewed that before the bell. Uh, and they raised their revenue forecast for the year, and those shares are moving up about 6%. Our deal of the day is Bristol-Myers Squibb, buying oncology company Turning Point for $4.1 billion in an effort to deepen its pipeline in lung cancer treatments. 
The purchase price, $76 a share in cash. That was more than double Turning Point's closing price yesterday. That accounts for the massive gain today. Uh, and there's the CEO of Bristol-Myers. We will be speaking to him at the top of next hour on Power Lunch. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler? Nice anytime your stock doubles in a day. Let's talk about some of the headlines at this hour. The U.S. and Russia may be at odds over Russia's invasion of Ukraine, to put it mildly. But the two countries are still cooperating in space, at least for now. A Russian cargo ship arrived at the International Space Station today, carrying nearly three tons of supplies. Hurricane season underway. Tropical storm warnings have been issued for Florida, Cuba, the Bahamas this weekend. National Hurricane Center is tracking the same storm that battered Mexico as Hurricane Agatha earlier this week. The strongest storm ever to make landfall during the month of May. It'll get a new name, Alex, when it hits the Atlantic. We will have more on the weekend storm warnings on the news with Shepard Smith. That starts at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. The food producer Kellogg will not face a lawsuit involving its popular breakfast treat, Pop-Tarts. Kellogg was accused of defrauding customers because its frosted chocolate fudge tarts did not contain milk or butter. But the judge agreed with Kellogg's argument that its marketing merely suggests that the product tastes like chocolate. And the judge dismissed the cake. <laughs> uh, the case. The cake. The cake. He dismissed the cake. I got cake. in an argument the other day about those Pocky sticks because I say they don't taste like chocolate and people, they're supposed to be chocolate, but they don't. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, this one went to court. Yeah. <laughs> Out of there. Ours Bang. hasn't yet. Tyler, See thanks. Ya. We'll see you soon. Ahead, we'll speak exclusively with Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester. Does she agree with Vice Chair Brainerd that inflation hasn't peaked and the economy may have to take a back seat in an effort to tame it? The exchange is back in a couple. Stocks are selling off today as investors digest that pretty strong jobs report this morning. Hiring stayed elevated. Wages continued to rise, although less than anticipated. Uh, the numbers reminding investors that the Fed has plenty of runway with the economy to continue to raise rates. And we see the 10-year reacting up around 296. Joining us now is Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, joined by our very own Steve Leisman. Steve, why don't you kick things Kelly, off? Kelly, thanks. I think you might have just stolen a line from our guest about this plenty of runway. Thanks for joining us, uh, President Mester. Um, Thanks. Thank you. Great. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about that jobs report. How do you view it? Um, what I said this morning, for what it's worth, is that every report these days is viewed as an inflation report, even if it's a jobs report. I mean, it was a strong report. It shows that there's still, you know, strength in the labor market, which is a good thing. We want, you know, to see some moderation in both activity and growth and in the labor market to, to cool things off a little bit. And so, you know, I think that having the number come in, the headline number come in a little bit lower um, than the previous month is a good thing. But it's too soon to tell, say that that's going to change our outlook or my outlook on policy. I mean, the number one problem in the economy remains very, very high inflation, well above um, acceptable levels. And that's got to be our focus going forward. And we're committed to doing using both our tools to get that inflation rate down. So you know, the moderation in the, in the uh, wage growth, um, you know, that's a that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Um, it shows that we're not in a, a wage price spiral, but we need to see more consistent, you know, tempering of both the underlying demand, which is outpacing supply, 
um, before we can get those price pressures down. So you brought up the one aspect, the inflationary aspect of the report, which is what happens with wages. Let's talk about participation. You had 330,000 people come in. You had this upward adjustment, obviously, in January of 1.3 million people. I don't think that's telling us. Where, where do you stand? Have you given up the hope that there's going to be this influx of workers into the workforce that's going to solve the inflation problem or at least loosen up the job market? I mean, I think we're going to see some more participation come back. But, it, you know, the downward trend, the long run trend, um, at least prime age, is a down is down. And we're not that far away from that. So I've never been of the, the view that we're going to have a savior come in and bring everybody back to the labor market. We know that people have come back. We've seen labor force participation increase. And that is one of the things that's going to be happening over the balance of the year. We're going to have both demand adjusting that excessive demand, and we're going to have something go on on the supply side. You know, it would be great if we see labor force participation moving back up, and it would be great if some of those supply constraints ease because that'll help rebalance demand and supply. But we can't rely on the supply side doing the work. That's why we need to use our tools, and we're committed to doing so. And we've already started that process. President Messer, it's Kelly here. And, and to pick up on that point, why not try to get to neutral, you know, this year? I mean, if it's going to take the rest of the year into next year with such strong trends, nominal income trends growing at almost 10 percent aggregated based on this report, shortages now we're worried about on the energy side of the equation, sure, exacerbated by Ukraine, but also just driven by demand relative to supply. So why not take the funds rate up 75 basis points or a full point or try to get more to neutral in, you know, in the next couple of months? Well, we are, you know, we're on a path to bring the funds rate up quite a bit, right? And so, as the chair indicated, where he is, you know, another 50 um, at the next two meetings. And I, I think that's appropriate. I think we've got to be moving rates up and on a path and being intentional about it and being consistent with it. And, you know, we do know that the economy is having pressures that are ex exogenous to monetary policy happening as well. So, Really, the process is bring interest rates up, um, keep that going, look at how demand is reacting to that. We've already seen um, tightening of financial conditions, and that'll help temper demand. We know that things are going to happen on the supply side. We, knew, we know war in Ukraine has really you know, raised a lot of commodity prices, including energy, and we have the lockdowns the COVID lockdowns in China, which also has disrupted supply chains. So again, it's both supply and demand moving. And I think the Fed has shown that we're, we're in the process of recalibrating our policy to get inflation back down to our 2% goal. And that's, what we're, that's the, the job before us, that we're going to use our tools to do that. Now, it'll take some time to get to that 2% goal. So what I'm going to be looking for is those monthly readings on inflation to see that they are starting to come down. I don't want to declare victory on inflation before I see really compelling evidence that our actions are beginning to do the work of bringing demand um, into better balance with aggregate supply. President Messer, you're now in the tag team portion of the interview, if you haven't noticed yet. Um, so that my turn. I want to ask you about uh, some comments that have been made. Elon Musk said things are about to get super bad. Uh, Jamie Diamond uh, uh, from J.P. Morgan said we're about to have a hurricane here. Um, and I actually have three questions that come off of this. First of all, how do you respond to CEOs who say something like that? The second thing is, 
Is, the, is it possible that we end up talking our way into a recession in the sense that these guys have their fingers on a variety of, of, of key economic activities, and if they pull back, well, then there's going to be a pullback. And then obviously the third question is, what is your outlook in terms of avoiding super bad and a hurricane? Right. So I don't see a hurricane, um, but we have to realize that the risk of, in, of a recession have gone up. I mean, we're in the midst of recalibrating our monetary policy. There are a lot of other things happening in the economy. We know growth in Europe is slowed. Uh, war in Ukraine um, is affecting the economy. So we have to be uh, eyes open that the risks have gone up. Nonetheless, you know, there is, you know, I still think a good case can be made that we can moderate demand with our policy tools um, and then get price pressures back um, contained and keep longer on inflation expectations contained and really get back to um, price stability over time. So I don't necessarily, you know, I, I, I always listen to, to everyone in the economy has an opinion. And you're right, you know, people who are running companies, um, I listen to that. We have a lot of business contacts that we contact all the time to see what they're seeing and what they're doing in their businesses. I can tell you from the fourth district that many of the businesses, you know, they, they you know, they're, they're a little more pessimistic in terms of just the way everyone is, the uncertainties around the outlook. But they still have a book of business and they're still, you know, facing, you know, supply mm -hmm. shortages because they want to do activities. They're still facing hiring um, constraints right. that they really want to hire. So, again, there hasn't been really a change in the underlying demand momentum in the economy. But it is a struggle to get that supply and demand back in balance. And so that's why recession risks have gone up and we have to be cognizant of that. And we want to try to squeeze in two more. So I'll, I'll quickly ask you, what does clear and compelling progress on inflation look like, especially ahead of the CPI report? Is it to see gains on the headline or the core of only three-tenths, two-tenths, one-tenth? Or is it measured by the delta in the year-on-year -year readings? Uh, and is it the CPI versus the PCE? Yeah, so I'm looking at a plethora of measures on inflation. I want to see those monthly numbers, the monthly increases on a downward trajectory. The year over year, of course, you can have base effects that affect that. So it's going to be really important to really see that consistent moving down. And we all know that the monthly numbers can be up and down. So we're going to be, I want to look at both the total headline inflation numbers, right, PC, CPI, the median CPI um, that the Cleveland Fed produces, the median PC that the Cleveland Fed produces. I want to see all those numbers. And I'm going to use that to sort of give me a sense of, yes, we are doing um, what we intend to do with our policy pool in moderating demand and getting those price pressures down. But it's going to take compelling evidence. It can't just mm -hmm. be one month number. It has to be across different measures and it has to be more than one or two months. I haven't seen that yet. Um, we've seen some of the numbers come down and then go back up the next month. And I, I, we re I really need to see compelling evidence before I would say declare that even inflation has peaked, right. uh, let alone it's on a downward trend. And, and this, of course, is the wonky, dweeby monetary policy part of the interview as well. So I'm going to follow <laughs> that up with another question along the same, along the same lines. There are people, President Mester, who suggest that you could bring the funds rate up quite naturally as high as 4 or 5%. And I give our viewers the math, which I'm sure you know, which is that, hey, there ought to be a 1% positive rate on the funds rate or half a point somewhere in there. Two or three percentage points, pick your number for underlying inflation, 
and 1% restrictive. That gets you to four or five pretty easily. Could you talk about how you think about A, should it be positive? B, should it be restrictive? And why wouldn't we price in a funds rate that would go that high? Well, I think the point you're trying to make is that when we look at, say, in the SEP, the long run uh, Fed funds rate, nominal Fed funds rate, that is long run, meaning we're at 2% inflation. Right. We're not at 2% inflation. So if you adjust for inflation, which we do to create a real um, rate, real rates are still very negative. And so I think the point, and that's really what guides, you know, what's happening on the demand side of the economy. So I think the people who are arguing for that just say, we need a real rate that's above zero. I think what we're going to be doing is over the next couple of meetings is bringing the funds rate up by 50. And I'm certainly in that camp unless things change, you know, unexpectedly change. Right? And then we're going to assess how much is demand and supply imbalance. You know, where is that? That assessment isn't trivial. It's going to be take a lot of um, looking at the data and you know analyzing things. But I'm going to come into that sep September meeting, um, and I don't if I don't see compelling evidence, then I'm you know I could easily be a 50 basis point in that meeting as well. So there's no reason we have to make that decision today. But my starting point will be: Do we need to do another 50 or not? Have I seen compelling evidence that inflation is on that downward trajectory? Then maybe we can go to 25. Okay. I'm not in the camp that thinks we, thinks we stop you know stop in September. I do think we need to bring the funds rate up, and we probably will have to go above that long run Fed funds rate in the SEP to be able to get inflation back down. President Mester, thank you so much for joining us. I've enjoyed this and uh, tremendously with uh, Miss Kelly. Uh, yeah, hey, we come back, uh, President Mester. Any of the Fed officials, you, Steve, on the show to, to delve into this any, any, any oh. time. That was great. Thank you. Still coming up on the exchange. It's been a rough 24 hours for this asset, and if one of the industry's pioneering companies is right, there could be a lot more pain ahead. We're back in a moment with more. Welcome back. It's been a tough year for muni bonds, facing a loss of 7.5% so far since January. But now it seems like investors are creeping back into the market. Muni bond ETFs took in a record $1.8 billion for the week ending May 25th. That quadruples their weekly average for the year. Outflows fell to their lowest level since March. Is this the start of a real bull run or merely a temporary boost? Joining us now is Michael Zizas, U.S. public policy strategist at Morgan Stanley. Michael, the flip side of those losses we mentioned is that yields are much more tantalizing, shall we say. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and you mentioned the, that the bond index is down about 7.5%. It was down 10% just a couple of weeks ago. The, the outperformance over the last two weeks has been pretty impressive. You went from underperforming treasuries by 2% to outperforming by almost a, a percentage point and a half. Uh, we think that's durable. We think credit quality is durable. The relative value in the asset class versus corporates and versus treasuries is pretty good. And even after you've had big moves like that, which are very uncommon, five out of the last seven times you had an outperformance move like that over the last two weeks, the next 60 days were still pretty good from a relative performance standpoint. So we're still feeling pretty constructive on the asset class. Given the yields now, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, people were saying that was the equivalent tax adjusted of a 6% return for what's deemed a pretty safe asset class. Have things, uh, yeah. are, are there still opportunities? Oh, sure, there's still opportunities. I mean, I do think it's fair to say that the best opportunities were a couple of weeks ago 
And the problem, of course, in the muni bond market is always that when mutual funds are losing money because of outflows, that tends to be when the best relative valuation opportunities are. As you mentioned earlier, that's starting to abate. And that's really starting to abate because Fed policies become more predictable. And so there's less treasury rate volatility. And therefore, the individual investor appears to be less concerned about owning bonds in general. But nevertheless, what tends to happen in the muni market is as individual investors put more money back to work in fixed income, the muni market also tends to perform. So maybe you missed the easiest gains in the asset class, but we still think that you're still going to have outperformance versus treasuries and corporates through the end of the year. And is it fair to say, I mean, for most investors holding these to maturity, they may not be so concerned about what the paper losses are if they think they can pocket, like I said, a five or six percent tax adjusted yield over whatever the life is, five or 10 or sometimes more years. So on that basis, it's possible we could see continued pressure on at least near term performance if rates go back up. Right. If the 10 years going back above three percent, we're going to see similar pressure come back on the asset class. Yeah, I think that's fair. Right. I mean, individual investors in the muni bond asset class tend to pull money out when interest rates are going higher and they've therefore realized negative total returns, especially if that's happening in a volatile fashion. So if that were to come back, if, for example, there were to be a major jump in inflation relative to expectations and the Fed has to pivot policy, that's going to be a problem for the muni bond market. Our expectation is that the peak of uncertainty about Fed policy is probably behind us and we're going to start to see a more reliable path for inflation, those things should continue to be supportive for the asset class. All right, Michael, thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you. Michael Zizis with Morgan Stanley. Still ahead, what do Amazon, Google, and Tesla all have in common? Plan stock splits. What it means for the companies and who else could be on the road to Splitsville? That's next. Welcome back. Amazon's 20 for one stock split takes effect on Monday, and it's just the first major uh, tech name on tap to split. Seema Modi is here now with who else is headed to Splitsville. Seema? Hey, Kelly, starting Monday, Amazon shareholders as of record May 27th will have 19 additional shares for every one share. It's the most prominent stock split since Apple underwent a four to one split in 2020. And while a lot of investors say stock splits don't matter, it's just a cosmetic change. Money managers say it can provide a short term psychological boost. When initially announced, Amazon said it would, quote, make the share price more accessible. Research from Bank of America's global research team shows companies that undergo a split outperform the broader market by 16 percent on average the year after. Of all sectors, tech and consumer discretionary stocks that split tend to see their share prices rise the most. And while splits have been less popular these days, a number of companies are anticipated to split Alphabet this July, Tesla, although it hasn't announced a specific date as of yet, and GameStop. Uh, Screening for the S&P 500 stocks with high share prices, booking holdings at the top of the list at $2,230, followed by AutoZone, Chipotle, Lamb Research, among others, Kelly. Yes, those are potential next targets. Seema, thank you very much. All right, everybody, before we go, we did ask the Twitter world who won the inflation debate top of the hour between me and Tom Porcelli of RBC. I'm ahead 71% to 23%, but it's my Twitter feed. We've got a lot of homers. We've got to get the Tom crowd out there. And we're going to dive more into inflation, especially into gas prices on Power Lunch, which starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.